Today in the Lazy D&D Talk Show, we have a lot of news. We're going to take a look at how the Forge of Foes Kickstarter is doing. We're going to talk about Radiant Citadel being nominated for a Nebula. We're going to take a look at Cobalt Press's announcement that they're going to update the Toma Beast 1. We're going to do a product spotlight on the campaign builder Cities and Towns by Cobalt Press. Wizards of the Coast has a new D&D Beyond community update. We're going to see what they had to say. They also announced, well, they didn't announce, but other people have announced that there is a creators forum going on in April. We're going to talk about that. And as part of that, we're going have a discussion about what can D&D, what can Wizards of the Coast and D&D Beyond do to strengthen the 5e and RPG community? This is more of a, a thought, a question that I've got more than anything else. And we're going to cover our first batch of questions from the March 2023 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm your pal, Mike Shea, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. There are two Patreon tiers. There are the veterans of Sly Flourish and the heroes of Sly Flourish. If you want to give a little bit more, if you really like the material that you're getting from me, if you like this show, if you like the material you get on the Patreon and you find yourself using it and you want to give a little bit more, you can become a hero of Sly Flourish. This is a new Patreon tier that I have just set up. Patrons, both the veterans and the heroes, get access to all kinds of exclusive material, the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, a dedicated Discord server. Oh man, all different kinds of stuff that you get for becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. It's a great way to show your support. It's a great way to, to, to give back for the, for the work that I do. To the, to the patrons of Sly Flourish, to both the veterans and the heroes of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. The Kickstarter for my latest book, The Forge of Foes, is in uh, the middle days. We have about 19 days. We have about 19 days. We have 19 days left. We just crossed... While I was talking, $170,000. That's fantastic. 4,229 people have given their support to this book. It is going to be an awesome book. Scott Fitzgerald Gray, Teos Abadia, and myself are all working on this book. We're working hard every week. We're putting all kinds of work into it. It's going to be really, really cool. It's a fantastic book. And if you want to support it, you can do so. There is a link down to the Kickstarter in the show notes below. You can pick up the PDF for 15 bucks. You can pick up the physical version for 40 bucks, or you can pay package it up together with other copies of the Lazy DM or pick up any of our add-ons. There is a 30-page sample PDF to check out that includes a lot of material you can use at your table right now. It's not just a sample. It's actual material that you can use in your game. It's an outstanding thing. I've been using it. I you know, use it in every game that I've run. I've been using the sample chapters to, to build, the mo- build monsters on the fly. It's really fantastic. Check it out. To those of you who have backed and supported the Kickstarter, thank you so much. This is really a, a fantastic way to show that you enjoy the work that I do and to get a really cool book and to help us build this really cool book in the process. Thank you all very much for that. Journey to the Radiant Citadel, a book of a bunch of different adventures set in many, many different cultures that was released by Wizards of the Coast last year, is nominated for a Nebula for Best Game Writing. This is really a this is a very big deal. A book like this getting nominated for a Nebula is a fantastic a fantastic achievement. I am very lucky to be friends with Scott Fitzgerald Gray, who helped edit. He, he was one of the one of the major editors on Journey Through the Radiant Citadel, and it's really an exciting book. I had previewed it before. I'll link down where I had gone over the book itself. I like it very much. I think it's an outstanding way to show a wide range of different adventures that are set in a whole wide range of different cultures with a very high fantasy element really really neat thing wide spectrum of, of as, as Rango Varg says of a spectrum of different scenarios I've had friends I haven't run any of them myself but I've had friends who have run them and like them very much so if you haven't checked out Journey Through the Radiant Citadel I would definitely check it out and I think it's outstanding that it is a finalist for a nebula 
for game writing. That is that is absolutely outstanding news. Another bit of news is that Cobalt Press announced that they're actually going to be revisiting Tome of Beast 1. So they're going back to the original Tome of Beast that was released back in 2016 and I presume taking a lot of the new modern takes on older monsters and refreshing the monsters that are in Tome of Beast 1. So you can actually get, I think, Kickstarter backers of the original Tome of Beast 1 get a copy on sale there's a big question of course like well why aren't we just able to get if you're updating the pdf how come we don't just get a new version of the pdf and the answer is the old pdf still worked this isn't like a, an errata they're, they're not going back and fixing things that were broken now there's probably things that you know were kind of little off that they had to fix but they're doing a lot of work to fix it so the idea that they're charging for a new version of this doesn't bother me that much in the same way that it didn't bother me that morden canaan's monsters of the multiverse refreshed the monsters from volos and morden canaan's I didn't feel bad about buying a new Monsters of the Multiverse book if I get new monster stat blocks along with it. In the same way, I won't, I, I didn't, I, I, I pre-ordered it. They're not doing a Kickstarter for this. They're just, they're just putting it up and, and making it available. And I think you can get it on sale for like 80% of the normal price. So you get like 20% off. But you're going to get a bunch of new, new new designs on the old Take of Monsters. So I think that, that is, I think that that's pretty cool. My hope is that, and I think they're going to release those monsters under the, the open gaming license. And when they do, I'm hoping to take them and stick them into the 5e Artisanal Monster Database. We'll see if I can, can manage to get away with that. So I'm pretty excited about this. I mean, I always like new monsters. Who doesn't like new monsters? So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what Tome Beast 1 looks like when it comes out. When it does, I will surely do a view of it here on the show where we'll take a look at the kinds of things that they've done and how they've how they've changed the monsters that they've that they've changed with this so pretty neat we're going to do a spotlight on the campaign builder cities and towns book the cities and towns kickstarter was had 4100 backers they did this kickstarter last year and the book finally came out i received both a, a physical ver I, I backed the physical version of the book and i got the map pack and it's pretty cool so we're going to take a look at the book today we're going to do a spotlight on the book now when i first got it i, I would say i was disappointed and then I realized, wait a minute, this isn't what I, this wasn't what I'm disappointed because it wasn't what I thought it was. And now that I know what it actually is, I'm not, I'm not as disappointed. And the reason why is for some reason I was, I don't know why I was expecting this, but I was expecting a book about that had cities and towns in it. And it doesn't, it's, it's to help you build your cities and towns. And I think my disappointment comes from the fact that I don't really do that. I just steal cities and towns from other source material. So this isn't like a book like Tolis where you're getting a big city-based campaign. It is a workbook. It is a a book, if you imagine, so there's there, there are sections of the Dungeon Master's Guide where it talks about building settlements. It talks about bu building cities and towns. If you were to take that section, which is not very many pages, and blow it out to 257 pages, 256 pages, it would be, uh, that's what you're getting. You're getting a very, very big toolbox for building your own cities and towns. Now, one of the things I, I'm pretty confident on is that about half of GMs, half of 5e GMs, they build their own material. They build their own campaigns. They build their own adventures and, and, and they very likely build their own cities and towns. So what you get with this book is a whole bunch of tools to help you build your own cities and towns. They ask you the, the kinds of things that you want to answer when you're thinking about building a city and town. So this is, I think, one of the reasons why my initial impression when I was first skim, skim reading it, I was like, eh, is because this book is something that requires a fair bit of work, that you have decided you're going to build a rich city and you want to fill out that rich city. This is the book to help you do it. Me, being a lazy DM, 
I want to do as little work as possible. And this book helps you if you still want to build a city. But the far easier way to build a city is steal one. Go find one. Go buy one, right? Steal a city out of some other material that you have. Like I am building a city right now. I am spending a lot of time building a city. I'm building the city of arches, which is going to be a, it's a Patreon product now. And it's going to be a bigger product probably in a year or so. And I'm doing that because it's something I want to publish. It's not something I'm going to run for a home game for a home game. I want to steal. I want to steal something. I think this is a, when I, when I read through it and, and gave it a deeper look, I think it's a fantastic source for DMS who are looking to really do that part of world building, which is city building, which is settlement building. And you want to have a lot of tools to help build it. What are the questions? How old is the city? What does a new city look like? And all throughout the book, they're both descriptions of what it means for these kinds of cities to exist, but also gives you tables of things to that you can roll on or that you can select from to build tables. So to, to build to build your settlements. And I think that that is a really good that does help with the lazy approach of like, I don't want to read everything, figure anything out. I can go to tables. I can roll a few dice and I can sort of build build my build my my settlements. Now, it's also one of these things where it's like, well, how much detail do you want to give it? And you can give it a very surface level of detail where you don't have to focus on all this stuff, or you can get really deep into the weeds of how cities operate, what their economy is like, what their politics are like, how religion works in the city, and dig into deep into all of these things. Build-wise, it's as good a build, it's as good a book as Cobalt Press has ever done. It's very, very well laid out, very, very clean design. Both the physical, the physical version is a, a beautiful physical book. So from a production standpoint, I think it is it is absolutely outstanding and from the internals once i recognize that ah this is really something to help you build a city this is a this is a resource to help you build a city it is the kind of product that i think will last for decades where i think you could go back to this and you could dive deep into this kind of thing whenever you want to build a city i really should give this book a thick look a, a deep look just while i'm thinking about my own city of city of arches am i answering a lot of the questions that a, that a book like this book like this has to offer so all the different kinds of you know governments that a city can have are here let's take a look let's go back to the table of contents and do a quick poke quick poke through the table of contents so you get an idea of the kind of stuff that's here so city planning what's the city's ages how does magic how does magic affect it that's that's all in chapter one chapter two the anatomy of the city geography and climate all the various different ways that climate can affect a city what are the districts here's common districts city districts docks government guard market religious residential you see this a lot of time whether you're looking at Sharn from eberron you're looking at tolis by monty cook games many times you look at a city they, they sort of in Waterdeep. They're all kind of broken up by these structures. They're all broken up by these, these sort of regions. The inhabitants, who are the rulers, who are the officials, noble families, guilds, craft, craft guilds, merchant guilds, illicit guilds, all the different kind of organizations. Cults and secret societies. Sly Flourish approved. You know, more secrets, you know, secret societies, and there's another a whole other section on secret societies. Other organizations, mercenaries, monstrous citizens. What is a monster exactly? That's kind of interesting subtopic, which is a good good one to bring up. And then running city campaigns. How do they play out? What kind of encounters would you run? You know, urban encounters, city heroes. What are the different kinds of heroes? These are how you would, how your characters fit in. This includes, of course, every book like this kind of has this. And I don't, I don't know how much I need it, but, but I'm kind of a different, you know, 
I don't really need new class options every time. It seems like every book comes out with new class options every time. And I think a book like this actually has stronger legs when it doesn't include that because the designs of those things change over time. But like the idea of building a city really isn't going to change. So it's one of those things where it sort of sets this at, at this time. And it means that the book might not be as useful in a post one D&D or post black flag world. I don't know. I mean, probably it all still work. But maybe the design isn't quite right, just like the monsters you're talking about. And then we have appendices, naming, you know, names, 100 interesting NPC encounters, awesome urban encounters, example town growth, example metropolis growth, and then battle, battle maps. It's got a whole bunch of battle maps. So these battle maps that are here, these actually, you can, you can buy poster map versions of these from Cobalt Press. So if you have an, 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 an at-home game, if you have a game, a game that's played physically at the table, and you want a whole bunch of different battle maps for different urban environments you can pick it up i did pick it up i actually i picked it up and then later it's like i don't know if i'm ever really going to use these because i don't tend to run i run some games at home but not a lot and i don't really jump into these kind of maps all that often but now that i've got them i probably would certainly use them so everything from like you know broken down hovels to arenas you know uh, here's a, a whole tournament arena so it's got descriptions of the of each of these and maps here inside the book so one complaint i have is that it does not include digital versions of these maps so i would really love to have vtt compatible ones i know that you can buy a roll 20 and like a fantasy ground versions of the book which would have the maps included but i don't use roll 20 and i if they included digital versions of the maps with the pdf anyway then i could use them in any vtt including roll 20 so it'd be nice if i had i don't need to have a whole thing laid out with encounters or anything like that i just want to have digital versions of these maps so that i can use them in any virtual tabletop or maybe no virtual tabletop maybe i'm just doing screenshots of them and showing them in in, in discord or something like that so it's kind of a bummer that i i do not get digital copies of this of these maps even though they are here inside the pdf itself so it's kind of neat they have a character sheet the towns. That's kind of cool. I didn't, I, I missed this when I was going through it. So, so that's, that's, that's pretty neat. But yeah, I would like, I, I, what I really would like, the one thing I would like is high resolution versions of the maps that are inside this book so that I could use them myself. But it really is a cool book. Again, once I got my head around the idea that this is not a book that's just going to hand you a city and, and give you everything you need to run a city, but it's giving you all of the instructions that you can use and all of the tools that you can use to build your own cities. So if you are looking to build your own cities for your own campaign adventure and you're looking for a book to really walk through that idea and give you a lot of ideas about how to fill it out and how to run it. The Main Builder Cities and Towns book by Cobalt Press is definitely a book you want to check out. It is 30 bucks in PDF. I think it is how much? $60, $60 hardcover in PDF, $30 PDF. You can pick it up right on the Cobalt Press store. You can find a link to pick this up in the show notes below. Wizards of the Coast posted a D&D Beyond community update. It's kind of hard to find. It's funny because it's, it's, it's not really an article that's on their front page. They published it on Twitter, though, so we were able to kind of see it there. And what they're talking about is what to expect in 2023. Now, this isn't talking about like their product lines. This really is the, hey, we told you the things that we were going to do in response to the whole OGL fiasco, and we want to lay that out for you so that you are very clear about what we have done, what we are working on, and what's coming out in the future. There are only a few things in here that are different from what we had previously heard, but I thought it was I thought it was look worth looking through. So we see that they did, in fact, add the 5.1 SRD to the Creative Commons. They have released four playtest packets for 1D&D, and that's all true. They've collected feedback for the three surveys for the playtest packet. So that's all the stuff that they've currently done. We know that. In progress, this one was new, that they're localizing 
5e SRD, the 5.1d, which is all the core rules for D&D 5e with, without some of the special secret sauce that they have for, for D&D overall, in French, Italian, German, and Spanish. That is really great because it means that it is going to open up all of those rules to all kinds of products that can be done in those four languages. Of course, we'd love to see it in more languages as well. But the fact that it's no longer just the SRD is basically only in English. Now they're not only putting out material that people can use, but people can publish with. People can take these other these other language versions and, and build other products. So that was something I hadn't been paying attention to and I had only seen on this and I thought was really good. They are reviewing previous editions for inclusion in the Creative Commons. So they're going through the, I guess, the third edition, the third and 3.5 SRDs, making sure that there's nothing in there that they don't want to release in Creative Commons. And then they're supposedly going to release that in the Creative Commons. That's really good too, because it opens up a lot of extra material that we, that, that publishers could use in a lot of different ways or could build off of. So there's really, there's value in them as a, as a, as a big piece, but then there's also value in small pieces that there are small pieces of these that you might take and want to incorporate into another game. So even though it's like the third edition one, which is, you know, whatever, 20, 20 years old that 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 there are parts of those versions you may want to use in another rpg i think the example i think the old school essentials actually use the third edition srd i don't know if he used the fifth edition one so that's an example of where you might be more likely to use the older third edition srd than you would be to use the fifth edition srd but it also like there's other i think there's a whole section on psionics in there there's a bunch of other material that's available in there that isn't in the 5.1 srd that you could actually make fifth edition rules from with slight modifications and know that you're not getting into this whole problem of derivative work copywritten you know you're at risk for making a derivative work of copywritten material so there's definitely value there's good value in having those older versions available under an srd as well so i look forward and i think i think what kyle said in the interviews is they're hoping to have that that they're planning to have that done certainly before the end of the year so that'd be great they want to publish their internal content policy for D&D products. That's fine. It makes them feel better. Go ahead. I don't know what this means. Update the D&D core rules. I guess what they're talking about is one D&D. Update the, update the core rules. I, and I think they describe that. Let's see. Feedback on the materials for the future player's handbook are ongoing and we're closely tracking your survey responses. Later, you'll be able to play with and provide feedback on content from the next iteration. So they're basically saying like, look, we're putting out new core rule books, i.e. one D&D. That's kind of interesting because they're kind of downplaying it, right? They're really, really being hard to say. It's not a new version, not a new version, not a new version. We're updating the core books is what they're saying, not a new version. But there's some big changes. Upcoming, ensuring 1D&D rules updates are compatible with 5th edition and the SRD. So they talked about the fact that they want to put out a new SRD, Creative Commons released material that ensures that anything that they're doing with the new updated core books are going to go back. That's great. The idea of ensuring 1D&D rules updates are compatible with 5th edition. Why isn't that in progress? Why is that in upcoming? And this is probably, I'm probably being nitpicky. You know, why isn't that part of the process as well? Why would you wait now? Oh, we'll do that part. We're going to make sure they're compatible. We're going to update the core rule books now and do play tests. And then we'll make sure they're compatible later. I don't think that really works. I think I'm getting, I'm probably getting caught up in semantics though. I don't think it really matters, right? We plan to keep the rules updates compatible with current version of release of fifth edition. Why is that upcoming instead of being in progress? In the same way we ensure that the SRD for fifth edition remains compatible. That's what he talked about that. Their, their expectations are that any of the new stuff that they do for the core books that they want to release under the Creative Commons, that the existing 5.1 SRD will be compatible and they will make compatible with whatever they do with the future. 
So not any real new information. The big one is, of course, the, the localization, I think, of the 5.1 SRD is probably the biggest deal. And it's the, the thing I had not heard about. And I think that that's really good. So nice that they are giving a regular report. Hey, here's what we're doing. The other thing that they're doing, this got announced. I first heard about it from Bob World Builder's video that Bob World Builder had received an invitation from the community. What do they call it? The, the content creators team, which is the previous D&D influencers team, that they wanted to fly Bob out to Wizards of the Coast on the West Coast and have a community content creator summit. And then a bunch of other people said that they are also invited to this thing, a small number of people. I guess it caused a little kerfuffle on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore, so I don't really know the kerfuffle. But I guess there were a bunch of people that said like, you know, well, who got invited and who didn't get invited? And I'll be honest, my first my first response, my first visceral, like outsider looking in, you know, C.S. Lewis inner ring reaction was, you know, how many videos do I have to make before I'm a content creator, right? How many, how, how many, you know, I only have 10 years and a thousand articles on Sly Flourish. When do I get to be a content creator? But the reality is like, you know, it, it's a small number of people. It's, it's, you know, some people get invited, some people don't. And, and honestly, like, I was like, well, whatever, right? You know, I was, I was miffed. I'll be honest. I was miffed when I first heard it. And then later I was like, well, you know, this kind of thing happens. And, you know, it's easy. I always go back to Don Draper. It's not that they're angry with you. It's that they're not thinking about you at all. And you're like, that's fine. Right. Like we're all, we're all doing our own thing. And I would be very interested. And then I also found that a friend of mine is going. So I'm like, oh, my friend is going. So I will hear all about it from my friend who is going as well. A very smart guy. Then I did receive an invitation to the digital version of the summit. So they don't fly me out there, but I do get to attend. I think it's one day. It's a few hours of two different sessions for a couple of hours each where they are going to announce stuff. It's all in the open. There was no NDAs involved on either receiving this or is received on the event itself. It means I don't have to leave the comfort of my own little office five feet from the cat litter box to enjoy to enjoy what's going on. It also means that I'm not put in this position of like, oh, well, they're paying like $3,000 for me to go out there. And, you know, if I'm nice, if I say nice things about it, does that mean I'm a shill? Now, now it's like, look, I attended a Zoom meeting, right? Like, that's fine. And also, I do, I do get stuff from Wizards of the Coast. So if there's an idea of whether I'm a shill or not, you, you could still make that argument either way because they have sent me other they have sent me other things in the past too, and I've talked about that before. So I'll get to see what's going on there anyway, and I plan to, you know, take note and I plan to see what they have to say, and you know, we'll 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 see. And I'm sure I'll be talking about it later in the future. So that's all cool. But it did bring up a question for me, which is like, if I were king for a day, if I have this opportunity to kind of talk to Wizards of the Coast in a productive way, and if I, you know, this is going to sound a little selfish, but I don't think it's selfish. I think it's, you know, if I could help steer Wizards of the Coast in a direction that was beneficial to 5e and to the RPG community overall, what what would that look like? And the example we we've we have you know obviously a lot of thoughts about this over the past few months and particularly the, the OGL kerfuffle really kind of showed us you know where where dangers lie. I've talked about this on the show about like what else could be we what else could we be worried about? What else should be we worried about that we weren't worried about before? Because I wasn't worried about the OGL going away and then suddenly I was and now I'm not again. I guess you know, what other things could we be worried about? And I've talked about, I think the reliance on D&D Beyond is kind of a big one, but I don't want to be just negative and like, well, we should just not trust D&D Beyond. I don't, I don't think that that's exactly very constructive and it's not helpful to wizards. Like what they can say, well, I guess we'll shut it down. Mike Shea doesn't like it. So shut down D&D Beyond. So instead it's a question of like, what can wizards do that strengthens D&D 
that strengthens the RPG community, that strengthens the 5e community, because I think these are different things, right? We have Wizards of the Coast, and I've, I have conversations with lots of friends of mine about this. We have Wizards of the Coast, a commercial company, right? They're a, comm they're, they're a subsidiary of a publicly traded commercial company. They have, they have stockholders. They have the, the things that they have to accomplish. They certainly have employees that are driven very heavily by wanting to make awesome games. I have no doubt about that at all. But they're a profit-driven organization that are going to seek profit-driven motives. Then you have Dungeons & Dragons, which is a brand that Wizards of the Coast acquired, right? They didn't create it. They acquired it. So I think that's just a slight point, but that's like a trademark brand. It is a legacy. It is a history. And it is why Wizards of the Coast has said they have. And, and Kyle brought this up and they even said this in all of their nonsense about the OGL. We want to be good stewards of the brand. And what's interesting is you can be good stewards of the brand and do terrible, terrible things, which, which is what they did. And then you can be good stewards of the brand and do very good things. And they did both. They, were, they said, we want to be good stewards of the brand, so we're going to remove the OGL because it's dangerous and because people other than us might want to do NFTs. And then they said, never mind, we want to be good stewards of the brand by putting out the 5.1 SRD in the Creative Commons, which are two totally separate things and both under the same guise of being good stewards of the brand. So... But, you know, we all have in our mind what it means for them to be good stewards of the brand. And the brand is a separate thing because, again, they acquired it. Wizards of the Coast holds it. They write towards it. They are the trademark holders. They technically own it from an acquisition, right? But two acquisitions. Wizards of the Coast bought it from TSR and then Hasbro bought Wizards of the Coast. So, you you know, those are acquisitions. That's how they picked it up. And then you so you have D&D &D the brand and then you have D&D &D the game which we know, like I have on my shelf over there, a bunch of the first edition TSR D&D games. Those are still legitimate. Those are still products that I own. I can still play D&D from books that Wizards of the Coast never had anything to do with. So D&D as a game is kind of separate than D&D as a brand. Although you get kind of tied between these. You can't publish the game without touching the brand if you're going to publish D&D. Then you have 5e, which is a rule set. And the 5e rule set is now in not, not quite public domain, but pretty damn close. It's in the creative commons. Anybody can use the 5e rule set. All you have to do is put two lines in your product that say, hey, this came from Wizards of the Coast and here's the link. But other than that, you can write your own rule set. And now what we're seeing is a lot of people are building to the 5e rule set independent of Wizards of the Coast, which is cool, right? We have Black Flag, we have C7020, we have Level Up Advanced 5e, we have you know a bunch of different things. And then modifications of that where entirely new games are getting built on those concepts like we saw with uh, uh, Shadow Dark RPG. So we see that there's variants of these games and that that whole thing is kind of growing. And that's the 5e ecosystem. And then we have RPGs overall, and that's everything else. That's all of the other tabletop RPGs that don't even touch 5th edition, don't really have anything to do with D&D. This is your... Blades in the Dark and your Fates and, you know, other other versions that are really separate from D&D. So you have all of these things. And I care about lots of them. I kind of don't care about Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast and their business and how well they do. I care about the results of that. And I care about that because to me, what I want Wizards to do, what I want D&D to do is put out a really good movie. That gets people excited about D&D. I want them to make their trademarks available to the Duffer Brothers for Stranger Things. I want to see a new cartoon series that kids could watch and enjoy. So like the Critical Role series on Amazon, really good. Except I had a friend who's like, oh, this is great. And I thought this was going to be a great opportunity for me to 
share D&D with my daughter and then I watch one scene and turn it off and said, nope, not for you, right? Because it's like, you know, a hard R-rated cartoon. How about we have one that's actually marketed towards 12-year-olds, for example? I want them to use the brand and pour money and pour effort into getting D&D out there in the community because they're the only one that can. I can't do it. Right. I can't make D&D popular. Like I can't make movies. They can make movies. Now, Grant, you have Critical Role. They're doing a hell of a lot of stuff. And then I want them to put starter cells on the starter sets on the shelves at Target so that people can actually go buy it and play some D&D. Circling back around. So then what do we, what do we want D&D to do and, and which parts of the hobby do we want them to really reinforce? And I keep coming down to like, OK, well, D&D beyond like what's what's the risk? And the risk to me is digital digital stuff. And the risk is not, I think a lot of people think the risk is that they're going to make their stuff too closed. Hey, you're going to put out a VTT, but I'm not going to be able to make my own content for it. Or you're going to make a VTT and I'm not going to be able to, you know, Cobalt Press won't be able to put stuff on it. And some people would argue that like D&D Beyond, because it's a closed ecosystem, that D&D Beyond is not open. And if it were more open, then it would be better for the community. I'm not sure that's true, because I think that what you could end up doing is putting too many eggs in one basket. And then Wizards of the Coast does control more of the community than they do, because now other groups like, say, Cobalt Press is more dependent upon them having their stuff accessed in the VTT or on, on D&D Beyond. So I think it's more, I want the opposite. I want them to take the D&D material material and put it out much wider. So one of the things that I do, if I have an opportunity at this summit to kind of ask a question or, or make a statement, it will be, do you commit to continuing to release D&D material on other third-party platforms, including ones you've already supported, Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds, but how about supporting other ones? How about directly supporting Foundry? How about supporting Demiplane and Nexus? Like, I want to see it on other platforms. Take the material that they've got and release it to other platforms and commit to re continuing to release it to these other platforms so that we can try a lot of different tools. We don't have to just use D&D Beyond and the VTT there. We could use any of the VTTs. Then make yours as strong as possible possible so that we want to use yours, not because we have to, because that's the only place you can get the material. So I'd really love to see that expansion of take the, all of the material that D&D has outside of the 5.1 SRD, but stuff like Morden Canyon's Tome of Foes, their adventures, Xanathar's and Tasha's, and the new core books and everything else, and release those to these other platforms. Look at Demiplane, release them to Demiplane, which would be a big coup because it's going back to Adam Bradford again. Put about on Foundry. Foundry is a very, very popular VTT that only has unofficial support. So release that and then continue to release it on make sure commit to continuing to release it on Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds, because I think we really worry. I worry that they'll pull the license back and that would be damaging to the hobby overall. That's damaging to D&D. It's damaging to the RPG community. It's damaging to the 5e community. And I think now on that same side, the 5e community as it is, again, Cobalt Press and, and, and Level Up 5e and everything, they need to shore up by saying, we are definitely going to be releasing to those other platforms, which they are right now. All of those same publishers that many, many publishers publish Tour Foundry except Wizards. So if there's a 5e system that people like, that's close enough to one D&D that you feel good about it, and it's available on that platform, well, now we have multiple versions of 5e that we can play, and that's good for us. The other thing I would like to see, and I'm getting, and these are me just getting my head around the ideas. I'm not even sure that I'm 100% about these, right? I'm still pondering this, and luckily I have some time to ponder it. But my, my, my well, another question is, well, what can they do with D&D Beyond to make it more open too? And one example is having an open API. Could you have an API where people can use like OAuth to access their material 
on D&D Beyond, but through another tool. So if I, and an example of this is Avre. Avre is a Discord bot, and you can connect Avre and Discord to D&D Beyond. And then in Discord, you can run commands that will pull material that you have control over, that you have the license to, over on D&D Beyond through Avre. Well, what if there were other ways to do that? What if there were other platforms where I could log into the platform and the platform could pass my credentials to D&D Beyond and then pull back the material, the, the, the non-SRD material in another tool through access to from D&D Beyond to me? It's kind of confusing to, to understand, but basically I have licensed Tasha's material from D&D Beyond. What if instead of, pretend for a minute, well, Foundry would be a good example. What if I could go into Foundry and I could log in with my Foundry credentials and I could just tell Foundry, hey, by the way, I already have the Tasha's stuff over in D&D Beyond. And Foundry reaches out to Tasha's and says, hey, Mike Shea's here and he has access to Tasha's. We're going to pull the Tasha's data down. And it pulls it down into Foundry and then I could use it inside Foundry. That sort of open ecosystem for the API, I think would be really powerful. I, I'm sure there's details that make it really hard, but they're, again, they're doing it for Avre. They're already doing it for one tool. So I think if, if you're doing it for something like that, now granted, Avre is their own bot, but it's still an integration through Discord. I think that, you know, if there was more capability to do stuff like that, I think that that would be a way that D&D Beyond could be stronger for the community than it currently is. That How about I have access to the stuff that I have in D&D Beyond, but outside of D&D Beyond? You can still manage the authentication. If I stop buying it, you can, you can pull it. There's probably security ways you can ensure that the data doesn't, that I can't keep the data even if I drop my subscription. I'm sure there's things you could do like that. So just, you know, that would be something that I would really, I would really like to see. So I'm starting to get my head around this. If you have thoughts and ideas about this, like what are ways that Wizards of the Coast could continue to strengthen the RPG community that ensures that even if philosophies change inside Wizards of the Coast, that whatever, I want them to be doing more stuff to make sure that the game cannot be hurt by anybody, including them. And, you know, how can that be done? That's, that's the, the sort of approach. I'm, I, it sounds negative, but I don't think it is. Like, I, I think there are things that they can do. And we really just want all of us to be great members of this awesome hobby that we love. And we all, if they want to be good stewards of D&D, what does that look like? I think that idea of releasing and updating the SRD is an example of being a good steward of D&D. It means that you are willing to relinquish control over stuff that you wouldn't want, normally want to, and many companies wouldn't. And I think that's great. So... What are other things? What's like the digital version of that? Somebody else brought up like, what if they were to kind of standardize a structured way of passing D&D instructions around among systems? The example is I talked about Open 5e on the last show. Fantastic website that has an API for all this material. What if Wizards said, okay, we're going to work with other members of the community, come up with an open way to describe things like character classes, subclasses, spells, magic items, monsters, and all of these bits of things. And we're going to come up with a standard schema that could be passed around from system to system so that if you want to know what a magic item is like, you could just use our schema and you know what a magic item is like. That's probably a bit of a reach because coming up with standards is really, really hard. But that would be a really interesting thing to do is if Wizards would work with other publishers. Like imagine, if you will, Wizards, Cobalt Press, N-World Publishing. Who else? Who are the other big 5e? Oh, let's say like Ghostfire. That they all get together and say, you know what? We've been publishing PDFs and, and, and unstructured digital text for a while. What if we all came up with a structured way to do subclasses? 
right? So whether whatever publisher you are, you're all publishing digital versions of subclasses the same way. It means when you're passing those subclasses into things like World 20, they're all consistent. Fantasy Grounds or Foundries, same way, consistent. If you're sharing them among other sites, consistent. If you say, I have material that I'm going to release under an, an, my own system resource document, the system reference document, I'm going to put them out in a structured way that is compatible with all the other ones that are out there. That'd be pretty cool. That means you could go, for example, to any random treasure generator and the generator would be able to reach out and grab treasure from all these different publishers and put them together into one random generator without having to change like any of its code because it's speaking the same way to all of them that'd be pretty interesting i don't know if we're going to get there but that'd be pretty wild right that'd be that'd, that'd be a pretty neat thing so these are all the thoughts i have about I think a thought exercise that I'm working on, particularly because I was invited to a digital community summit thing and I might have an opportunity to pass feedback along is what do I feel like wizards could do to really strengthen the 5e and TTRPG community that also, and that, you know, they are a commercial company, so it obviously needs to help them too. They, they shouldn't just say like, well, we're just going to do nothing, but provide all of our information to free <laughs> for free to everybody. I get that they're a commercial company and that they, they, they have a right to sell the information that they've got, but we also want to make sure that like, they're not, I don't getting back to my whole big long discussion about all the different kinds of parts of this of Wizards of the Coast of the company, D&D is a brand, D&D is a game, 5e is a game of game platform and and RPGs is a general hobby. Getting back to that idea of like, I see sort of an on-ramp and I want the on-ramp to be somebody goes and watches the movie and they like the movie and they're like, wow, that looks really fun. I'd love to do more with that. And then they go to Target and they buy a starter set and they go, this is really fun. I want to play it with my friends. And then it said, oh, the starter set says that there's more stuff. And then they go, the problem is if the ecosystem is movie to starter set to D&D beyond and then never touching anything else, you're just inside the Wizards ecosystem. You're not really enjoying 5e because there's so much other 5e stuff that you can enjoy. How do you get them so that they can get in there and then expand out and go, oh, look at all of these other things. I have all of these different virtual tabletops I can play with from very, very tactical to very, very open and, and fast and, 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 and loose. And I have all of these different resources. Sure, I have all the monster books that Wizards published, but I also have all these four Tome of Beast books that Cobalt Press produces. And I've got these campaign settings like Drakenheim. You know, you want them to get into all of the stuff that's there. So how do we make that on-ramp smooth? Rather than just saying it's all circular inside of Wizards of the Coast. That's, that's, you know, that's, it's fine if people like to go with Wizards of the Coast stuff and stay there because it's great products and they just want to use it. It's not great if it's like, well, it's so sticky, they can never leave again. That's what I'm trying to figure out. So that's kind of where my thoughts are right now. Again, they're kind of loosey-goosey. If you just watch that long rant or listen to that long rant, you could tell that like, I don't have super organized thoughts on this yet. I, I would kind of like to organize my thoughts on it. And I'd like to run it by other members of the TTRPG publisher community and people, certainly players and DMs. Certainly if you're a patron of Sly Flourish, you'll, you know, you, you, you and I will talk about this quite a bit. And, and I'd like to get ideas about you know, where do we think, where do we want wizards, right? Where do we want wizards as part of this hobby? I know there's people out there who are very, very you know, negative who will say like, I don't want them part of the hobby. And that's just ridiculous, right? They are a major player in the hobby. Absolutely. But we want them to be a good, positive source and a driver for the hobby. We want them to be the, I think that there's nobody better to be the on-ramp to the hobby. So how do we, how do we make that strong and make it so that this hobby is really, really going to be great so that's something i'm going to think about more we're going to talk more about the show and closer to april closer to when the, i don't even know when the summit is exactly but when we get closer to that that's when we're going to start to figure out that that kind of thing so i think i think you, you'll you'll hear more 
Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I ask patrons for questions. We do a monthly thread. You can post any question that's related to TTRPGs there. I answer everything on Patreon every Friday morning. And then some of those questions that I think are really good questions that are, have applicability to more than just a, a focus thing, but a wider range, I bring here to the show. And then some of them that I really think are, are worthy of an entire video or article, I will turn into a video and article. Matt B says, I, am, I was running an adventure where one of the NPCs was described with the bold textile as rock gnome bandit captain. At one point where it looked like the party might try to fight the NPC and their crew, I started to wonder if it'd be appropriate to apply a rock gnome template for a lack of better term to the bandit captain stat block and give them advantages on int whiz charisma saves or if i'd be mucking with the cr and doing so any thoughts how would you reflect these changes in cr as i'm writing this i realize the answer to this might just be for you to plug your kickstarter so please do so if appropriate you know i'll plug another book first and that book would be the dungeon master's guide because the dungeon master's guide in the monster creation section actually has a set of humanoid templates that you can apply to any of the NPCs to kind of turn them from one thing to another. So if you want a lizard folk veteran, which is different from your bugbear veteran, they have ways to show you like what's the difference between a lizard folk and a bugbear veteran. And they usually have like a, a, one special feature for each of those species that you can apply to a template. So the Dungeon Master's Guide has that already. I would not worry about, I'm going to get into your thing about challenge rating. Something to really keep note of challenge rating. This is something that gets into Forge of Foes and, and, and the way we bring it. You really only have to worry about challenge rating initially. And once you have decided upon a monster, and once you start modifying the monster, the fact that you know your characters and their synergies and their strengths and, the, and that of the players... CR kind of goes out the window. You really don't need to worry about CR. You're not likely to take a monster and make it like, you know, twice the CR unless you're really bumping up the modifications. So doing something like applying a rock gnome template, you're not going to change the CR. If you do, it really doesn't matter. It's when you're doing really big things. Are you giving them like twice the number of attacks or double the hit points? You really have to modify a monster heavily to really shake its challenge rating up. So I wouldn't worry too much about challenge rating. Now, yes, I will plug Forge of Foes. Forge of Foes, we talk about all kinds of things. How can you take any monster and sort of turn it into any other monster? How can you apply monstrous templates to them to kind of turn an aberration into a dragon or, or something like that? What are the traits that really kind of define a monster of being a particular type? It does not have humanoid templates, and that's because the DMG does have humanoid templates, and those templates are also relatively minor things. So you can always come up with something, and you can always add one of the, the common, you know, we, we're going to have piles of them. I think more than 50 different powers that you can apply to any given monster to sort of make it unique, you know, make it make it thematic to the, the role. So you can always do something like that. But in general, you don't have to worry about challenge rating. So I wouldn't worry about challenge rating. And again, feel, be confident in just modifying monsters as you will, willy-nilly. Especially the more experience you get, the easier it is for you to just add a modification of like, I'm going to give this guy pack tactics, or I'm going to give him this the, the berserker trait. I'm going to give him, give him character traits. Oh, this is like a sneaky dude. I'm going to give him the the cunning the cunning action that rogues get. So there's there's you know you can really sort of change you can really sort of change your 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 monsters around how you want to fit the theme, and don't worry about it too much. 
Marcus H says, how do you balance being a softy DM with challenging players when it comes to secrets and clues? I often find myself handing out crucial secrets early in the session after a few ability checks because I want the players to quickly understand what's going on. This creates two issues. One, I don't have any meaty secrets for the rest of the session. Two, I fear that the players don't feel any challenge in discovering secrets and clues. They can pretty much expect to find out the important bits because they know I'm nice like that. Any thoughts on how you work with this issue? Good question. So some secrets are challenging and some are not. And there are some secrets you want the characters to definitely learn so that you can move the game forward. And then there are other ones that it's like, it's okay if they don't discover it. Maybe they don't discover it now, but they discover it later. Little bits of lore that they might pick up through a history check. Maybe they only pick up a little bit of it now and maybe they pick up the rest later. So looking at your secrets and saying like, how critical are these to the movement of the game is one way to kind of say, these are your basic secrets and these are your advanced secrets. And the advanced secrets might require good ability checks. And maybe you don't learn them. Maybe you just don't learn them right away. Maybe you don't ever learn them, but maybe you only learn pieces of them. Maybe you learn them later. Maybe another circumstance reveals the same secret. That's one of the reasons why secrets are abstract is you get to decide how and when to release those secrets. You don't have to, and, or, or ever, and you don't have to decide. They can only learn the secret in one way. Now, I, I, you know, I think if you if you followed me, you recognize that I would lean towards revealing too much, that I think that players are generally only understanding about half of what we're throwing out there anyway, and the players are not their characters. So the characters might have more principles for understanding what they're going to you know they, they might the characters might have a better idea of what they're going to pick up than the players do they might have better skills at it so there's lots of different ways to hand out secrets including not even doing ability checks but just saying because you're of this background you know this thing or because you're proficient in this skill you know this thing so there's things that you can reveal without even doing ability checks and then you might have like everybody roll and whoever's highest is the one who learns the thing i've done that before too but so I, I don't worry about challenge. I've never really thought of the idea of challenging players with secrets. I don't, I don't think of it that way, but I'll be honest. I don't really think about challenging the players and the characters at all. I just think about sharing a fun story. And sometimes it's really hard. I ran really hard battle yesterday and I thought it was really fun. And the players afterwards like, Oh, that was one dude was like three hit points away from, from the true death, right. From having his brain sucked out of his mind by a, by a mind flare. So, and, and he said, he's like, Oh, I had a character ready to go. So, challenge happens because the circumstances bring it for me. I don't, I don't start with challenge and then think how to bring that challenge. Challenge happens organically in my games. And the same is true with secrets that secrets only happen. Hard secrets sometimes get discovered. Sometimes they don't. And the circumstances of the game are what determine whether or not something is going to be easy to find out or hard to find out. The one thing is like, you want to make sure they have enough information to be able to move forward though. And if you're tying that, those kinds of secrets to the movement of the game, you, you probably want those to be easy to figure out or a certainty that they will figure them out. And then it's perfectly fine to have a, some secrets that are really secret and it's going to take a long time to find them out and maybe they're too hard and they never will. But really think about like what the secret means in the game and what the approach the characters are taking and what the difficulty of that is. That that seems better than trying to worry about whether or not you are challenging them with secret or not. That's 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 my thought on it. Dan D says, I have a question about integrating meaningful, meaningful things into a game for a player whose character doesn't really line up with the general themes of the game or the vibe of the rest of the party. I'm running a game in a Midgard using content from both Tales of the Old Margrave and Tales, Tales from the Shadows with the Dusk Queen as the main antagonist. And most of my players have created characters that fit the overall themes of these settings and are leaning into these themes as we play the game. But I have one player who created a character that doesn't really fit with the scope and theme of the game. And I have a hard time including things in the game that the, his character can interact with in a meaningful way. 
He's playing an old man human void cleric who is kind of nihilistic, esoteric bummer. And after I specifically ask them to make characters of the setting in mind, I have a hard time saying no to players and figuring I would let him do what would make the game fun for him. But I feel like we have played, as we have played, he's not having as much fun as everyone else because the adventures and content don't really give his character a thing to invest in. Granted, he hasn't given me much indication of what those things might be, but I still want to make the game fun for him without derailing the theme or scope of the game. Any advice on how to handle this? Yeah, so this, my immediate reaction, so you you know the nuances and the intricate details of your, of your player and of their character and of the game you run and of yourself and everything else, and I do. But whenever I hear something like the nihilistic, the nihilistic old man, human void cleric, you get like, oh, look, it's the edgelord, right? It's the guy like, I don't even know why I group with you guys, or I don't know why I go on this mission. And I, that it's why I reinforce so strongly in a session zero that you want to have this one clear sentence that's, that's like a bond that all the characters share, which says something along the lines of all of, the char- all of you guys are working together in cooperation to do X, where X could be to kill the devil Strahd or to uncover the secret of the Scarlet Citadel or to shatter the kingdom of the ghouls or you know, whatever the main goal of the, the campaign is. If you can, if you know it early, it could be to protect El from the cults of hell. Right. And then that changes as hell swallows El So you can, I really think that that's important. So even, even if they're making a character that's off the beaten path, you still want to say that's fine. But why is your character interested in this thing that we're going to do with these other characters? What binds, binds you to the character? Now, I think even afterwards, especially if you feel like the player's not having a good time, this is you know the other thing, which is have a conversation with them, right? Find a, find a time where you can have a one-on-one conversation. This is an idea, right? I'm just offering an idea. It's not necessarily, again, you know the circumstances better than I do. But thinking about it, one of the things I would do is maybe spend some time with the player and say, it doesn't feel like your character, like A, that you're having that much fun with the character you've got and that the character is well integrated. Are there ways that your character could be better integrated with the group to accomplish this goal and, and describe what the goal is, right? Like, what are the ways that your character, are there, are there parts, are there elements of the character's backstory? Are there events that have happened in the game? that draw your character in. You might want to reinforce those. And I think that that will be more fun for you. It'll be more fun for me. It'll be more fun for the other players. If we know why your character is, is working with the other characters and, and loves them and is working with them to accomplish this other goal, maybe they don't love them, but like maybe there was a reason why are they with the characters and why are they working on the goal? And, and you don't get to say, no, you don't, you know, the, 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 the thing that you think, well, there really isn't one. And you say, well, if there was, what would it be, <laughs> right? Like keep reinforcing that. Like you don't, you don't get to say no, you don't get to shut it down. And then if they really say, I really can't think anything, you say, do you maybe want to try a different character that you think could? Because it's like, you're not going to build a whole adventure just for them. And they're just bringing their, their adventure in. They need to have a reason to accomplish the things that they're given them. This is sort of the, the, the player and GM pact is they need to play the game that you're running. And you want to run the game that's going to work with those characters, but it's all the characters, not just one character. So I think it's never too late to have a conversation like that. And, and even you can re I would probably have the conversation one-on-one with the player, but you could do it with the group too. If you feel like the group is a little loose, you can either have an in-game event or you could have an out of game event where you say like, you know, you're all sitting around the campfire thinking about what you've done and thinking about what you want to accomplish. And you know that your goal is to work together to do this thing. How do you guys feel about that? And it's sort of like the pajama, like which pajamas do you want to wear to go to bed? It's a leading question, but 
it helps drive them towards this one goal. And they might go, oh yeah, you know, like I really do feel like this, this thing is true. So yeah, I think, I think, I think more could be done there. I think, I think that that's something that you might, that you might do. That's a thought. PhD 20 says, do you ever use dice to determine story elements? Not necessarily random tables, but improvisation. How many canoes do we find on the river? Roll a D4 to find out. Yes, sure. Why not? I use dice like that all the time. Sometimes I'll use them for random encounters and I'll just sort of make a thing up. You can, of course, do the evens as one, odds as the other. I'll do a lot. I, I roll dice a lot of times, most of the time, to determine which targets monsters attack. I don't really, I'm not a big believer in like acting tactically perfect with monsters. I think in the chaos of battle, they could randomly pick targets all the time. So I really like to roll to determine which monster and i like to roll that in the open so i say like one two three they attack you four five and six they attack you and i roll and i go four five and six they're attacking you and they go oh okay like me getting attacked was not the dice it was not mike picking on me that was the dice picking on me when it makes sense like obviously you're not gonna have a monster like get five opportunity attacks to go to a back line but you definitely if there's an option to attack especially in theater of the mind rolling randomly to determine targets is something i do all the time but i'll I'll do it for random encounters too i'll say like on a one or two somebody's gonna interrupt your rest on three three four five or six they won't do I use it for like in-game stuff of like 1D3, you know, NPCs will show up? Sometimes, you know, I mean, that's, you've got these dice in front of you. You can use them all the time. So yeah, the answer is sure. You can use them for all kinds of things. You know, how many canoes do you find in the river? Roll 1D4 to find out. Sure. And that's where it helps. One thing I'll add here. This is where it helps to understand like how dice odds work and what happens when you mix a couple dice together and bell curves, 2D4, you're most likely going to hit a five. It's really interesting to me that if you mix two different types of die dice together so if you do like a d4 and a d6 the average of a d4 and a d6 isn't one number it's three numbers it's i think it's a, a d4 to a to a d6 is a four five and six are evenly matched like four five and six are going to be most even which is when you and, and that's i think i think i have that right that if you have any two dice the minus one, the zero and the plus one on the die is the, the it's, it's a flat bell curve. I think I have that right. And it, you can go research it. But if you mix two different types of dice together, you get a flat bell curve. It, not, not, it, it's, it's still a bell curve, but the top of the bell curve is three numbers, not one number. And that's really interesting. That means that if you're building like a random table, you can have three numbers in the middle that are all equally likely to one another, even though the ones down and below and the ones on the other side are our bell curve. Yeah, there's a site called Any Dice that actually can show what those what those random distributions are like. AnyDice.com is a way that you can run dice equations and it shows you what the likelihood is. And I did a D6 plus a D4 and it's five, six and seven are all evenly likely. They're all, they all have a 16.67% chance of hitting five, six, and seven on a D on, on a D six plus a D four. Let's see if I blow this way up. Yeah. If you do, for example, a D eight plus a D 12, I think it's 12, 13, and 14. No. So this is interesting on a D eight plus a D 12, which is a common dice mixture for random tables. Your 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 are all the same distribution. So by splitting the dice up by a D8 and a D12, you actually get five numbers in the middle that are all equally likely. And then, and then a much flatter bell curve, right? 1% on the 2 and 1% on the 20, but 8%, 8, 8.3% on the 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. It gives you really interesting distributions. So knowing about those weird distributions, knowing about that like mixture of the bell curve is a way to, when you're using dice in your game to represent the chaos of the world, 
that's one model. The mixing of two different dice together is one model. Of course, you have the standard bell curve. 2d4 averages 5. 2d6 averages 7. You know, most likely a 7. So mixing two dice of the same together is really easy to understand. Mixing two dice together is where you get these sort of flatter bell curves, which are really kind of interesting. So, you know, it's one of those little things that you can kind of look at and figure out and try out. Play around with it on any dice. You know, see, see what you get. It's really, it's really pretty neat pretty neat stuff friends i want to thank you for hanging out with me today for the lazy rpg talk show i hope you enjoyed this show if you did and you want more stuff like this consider subscribing to the sly flourish newsletter there is a link down in the show notes below subscribe to the newsletter is absolutely free you get a free adventure generator pdf sent directly to your inbox and you get a weekly rpg related article sent directly to your inbox i've sent like a thousand of these over the years so lots of different things that you can get in the newsletter you can also become a patron of sly flourish there are now two tiers there is the veteran tier and the hero tier. If you want to give a little bit more, join the hero tier, but both the veteran and hero tiers get access to a dedicated Discord server. They get the City of Arches source book. They get Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2. They get the access to the Patreon Q&A and a lot of other stuff. Patrons, thank you so much for that. And of course, you can pick up any of my books, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's Workbook, or the Lazy DM's Companion, all available in the Sly Flourish bookstore. Links to all of that are in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.